Welcome to Demond Does the Six Questions, where the same six questions can tell a unique story. I am your host, Demond, father of two, husband of one, and leader of this here Demodcast. My guest is a writer, game designer, and martial artist. This any Award winner is also a cultural consultant, which means he gets paid to tell people they're racist. Best job description ever. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for James Mendes Ho! Thank you. Thank you for having me, Damon. Thank you. Thank you for taking time out to talk to a perfect stranger. Much appreciation. Before we get started into the six questions, tell us where you would like to be found on the web. Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, so you can find me at my website at jamesmendeshodes.com. I'm also on Twitter at Lula Vampiro. All my social media is linked from jamesmendeshodes.com from my, my website. I've got a blog there. Then I've got various game projects, which are going on on various companies' websites. But everything's, uh, everything's linked from my website. Twitter's also a really great way to reach me. We were talking before we started. Uh, your work, you're doing playtesting for Avatar Legends. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a senior designer for Avatar Legends, which is a... Or Avatar Legends, the role-playing game, which is the tabletop role-playing game that's about the world of Avatar, The Last Airbender, and The Legend of Korra. And right now I'm running some play tests for the system that I've been designing together with Magpie Games. That is freaking awesome. That is very, very cool. Very cool. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. The quick start rules that we've been working on have just come out. So you can go to magpiegames.com. I think that's the website. And uh, sign up to, uh, to take a look at them yourself play the game with your with your own group it's a lot of fun and we'd all we'd be very grateful for you know people's feedback and input heck yeah um i'll put the uh, link in the show notes so everybody can pick it up and uh we can help help this be the best project we can that uh you, you can make man that's awesome thank you thank you so much thank you thank you uh already so are you ready to answer the six questions I wasn't born ready because when I was born, I was an infant and I did not understand language, but today I'm ready. <laughs> Question number one. When did you know you wanted to be a writer and get, you do a lot of things? So I guess I'm basically asking, what's your origin story? My origin story. Okay. So as a little kid, I spent a lot of time like in make-believe worlds making up stories and characters and so forth with my sister or with other kids on the playground, anything like that. And read a lot. And I really liked fantasy and science fiction and all that. And I started writing my own stories, I think pretty, pretty early in childhood. Mm -hmm. And so I always thought of myself as a writer, but I think then as I, as I got older and as I encountered like all kinds of struggles with like social life and academics and so forth in, in high school and college, I kind of left that idea by the wayside. I stopped thinking of myself as a writer. And it wasn't until I, I got into tabletop role-playing games that I, I started writing stuff again. After I got out of college, I was bouncing back and forth between bad jobs and playing a lot of role-playing games on the side to kind of cheer myself up. 
and volunteering and meeting people at conventions led to uh, my first game writing job in 2014 on a, another Magpie project, uh, Urban Shadows. Mm. Um, and then that led to many, many other projects working like initially as a writer and a game designer. And then slowly my work started to migrate from being mostly writing stuff to mostly uh, cultural consulting. The formal definition of that is a cultural consultant helps other creatives represent diverse and especially marginalized identities in a validating and affirming way, which it's like a, a fancy way of saying that, yeah, people hire me to tell them how they're racist, uh, but then to, <laughs> it's not just negative. And that's sure. the, that's the thing that I, I always make sure to say nowadays, because I don't want people to think I just cancel stuff for a living. So a, a cultural consultant's job is additive too. When someone's talking about representing a certain identity, I want to help them represent that identity and the culture around it and all of the fullness of it and everything interesting about it in a way that gets people excited and in a way that makes the project better. At one point in my past, that the, the seed of that was just me thinking like, man, what do I want to do for a living? I wish I could just tell people they were racist and get paid for it. So, you know, those words did cross my mind. Like many projects that I have been involved in, what started as like a, you know, like a one-liner joke as I started looking closer and deeper at it grew into like a whole beautiful thing that's a lot richer than just that original one-line joke ever could have predicted. My personal specialties are primarily, uh, uh, I work with race, culture, and religion. That, so that's kind of my wheelhouse within cultural consulting. Although I'm also kind of a generalist. I end up talking about all kinds of stuff about gender and disability and so forth also. And then I also network uh, creators and consultants together and I help other cultural consultants, especially like fledgling cultural consultants, people who are from a certain identity who want to get into cultural consulting, but they aren't really sure how to do it. I also like help them get started and connect them with clients as well. That is awesome. How did the cultural consultant aspect come about? I mean, you, I understand you, you know, you kind of, kind of uh, spoken into existence really, but like how, yeah. what was like, what was the actual process on how that happened? When I started writing role-playing games in like 2014, I noticed that there was a, that I, I was getting a lot of assignments, which had to do with like some form of expertise that I had, which wasn't very common, especially when it had to do with a marginalized identity that designers really wanted to represent in a game, but didn't know how to represent. Mm. It felt like people were uh, hiring me to, to write the stuff that they were too scared to write about themselves. Ah, gotcha. And so I started out like kind of cultural consulting on my own work and doing like my own research to represent all of that stuff. And then I guess in addition to that, I found that, you know, when I was working on a book, I often got kind of roped into looking over other people's work and giving my opinion on like how, how they had done and what kind of changes they, they had made. And after doing that a few times, I realized I could probably just do this as a whole thing. I, I noticed that like a lot of other people I knew when they did that kind of work, it, it took a lot out of them. They found it really taxing. Whereas I found that, you know, after five hours of picking apart something to see how it was racist, I actually felt energized, uh, which isn't, you know, entirely a, it, or even mostly a spite thing or really a spite thing at all. It was a way that I could feel like I was helping. 
I'm not the kind of creator who needs to have something be like entirely my brainchild. I work much better in collaboration. And I feel most creatively satisfied when I can help somebody else take their thing that they're really proud of or excited about and make that real. Because then I feel like I'm reinforcing a connection. And then I get to see how happy and confident they are with their work after we've worked together on it. And I think that's, that's really beautiful. Question number two. What do you wish you had known when you started out? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a really good question. I think that when I'd started out uh, doing writing and cultural consulting, mostly what I, what I wish I had known is who else was out there. So much of what I know, so much of what I apply in my work comes from other people and comes from friends and uh, acquaintances, uh, people, I, people whose work I read or people who I encounter in gaming or at conventions, people who tell me something which uh, ends up sending me down like a research hole or ends up you know, starting this kind of avalanche of ideas rolling into each other, which end up being like a huge part of my, uh, end up being a huge part of my practice. I think that the more, the more people I meet, the more new perspectives I have, the stronger my own practice gets. And then, you know, hopefully I'm doing that for them too. So everything, everything that I, I want to know most comes from somebody else. Uh, so I, I wish I'd had those connections. I wish I'd known all of the wonderful people I know now uh, when I'd started out with this work. And then I think skills-wise, the, the other things that I often think about in this kind of work, th- there are all of these, like, there's all this kind of coded language that different people use. Every, every word, every way you can possibly express yourself has a history of its own. And to understand how things like how expressions can help and harm people, you have to be, you have to be really plugged into, into the history and the patterns of how those things, of how those things have been expressed and how those things have been used in the past. So, you know, every, every year, every time like discourse changes or evolves, I find new ways that like bad actors have taken like simple or safe concepts and twisted them and turned them uh, into something harmful. Sometimes it's something that I've said in the past or I've done in the past that seemed really innocent at the time, but I didn't know those things because I, you know, I wasn't in contact with whatever, you know, creepy bad actors are are using those expressions in a harmful way. So uh, I think a, a really common example that we see a lot in gaming and a lot in like nerd culture in general is, uh, for example, runes. You know, if you grew up and you were interested in like European mythology and culture, then it might not occur to you that something as simple as a runic alphabet, which is in and of itself not inherently bad at all, could end up being misused or perverted away from its original meaning. But right now, if you go to, you know, if you go to a convention or you go to a a Renaissance fair, I think that's often one of the places where uh, it's come up the most for me you see a lot of um, like reactionaries using runic symbols as a, sort of an expression of like white supremacist ideas. They don't even have to be full on Nazis or white supremacists. There's just people who are using runes as a symbol of like uh, of Eurocentrism in a way that might not even be inherently supremacist, but which 
ends up supporting supremacist ideas. And nowadays, if you're going to use runes in your own work, and I think people absolutely should use runes in positive ways and in ways that are like affirming and which represent Nordic culture in a, you know, a non-toxic way, you also have to be aware of how bad actors are misusing those same words that you want to use and those same symbols that you want to use. And it's not your fault that those bad actors have perverted that thing. But you still have to be aware of it because when people take your own work out of context, you don't want it to be vulnerable to misuse and you don't want to be misunderstood. Our lives are full of things that are like that, symbols that we partly have control over and then partly don't. With projects like you've done, once mm -hmm. it's out of your hands, it's, you know, out in the wild. And I, I, I'm, I'm just, I guess I'm piecing it together on like mm -hmm. what that means. That's so you, you gotta, you gotta do all your due diligence on the front end because exactly. once it's out there, it's out there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you, you can never have complete control over how people are going to interpret your work. Recently, we've seen Punisher logos becoming a, a symbol of oppressive violence when the Punisher was originally created uh, to criticize those kinds of ideas. And the Punisher's own creators had to weigh in and say like, yeah, this is not what I intended for this character. And the lessons that people are learning from this character are, are not the ones that I intended. And yeah, again, that's not his fault. He was clear about who he wants the Punisher to be. But, you know, once it gets out into fan culture, people can take that and turn it into something else. Uh, for, you know, Matt Fury, who came up with the character of Pepe the Frog for like a, an innocent webcomic, has had to watch his own creation get turned into this alt-right mascot. And he didn't do anything to warrant that. Nothing about his original creation of Pepe the Frog should indicate to you that it has anything to do with like you know white supremacists and people like Richard Spencer but you can never have complete control over what someone uh, does with your work but I think that especially in participatory media stuff like uh, games role-playing games video games where you're inviting the audience to take to take part in it and to make their own content using uh, sort of the seeds that you've planted we also have greater control than other media sometimes have in terms of affecting how people want to or are going to use our work. And we always have to be looking out for those opportunities to use our craft to influence how people not only interpret, but also reinterpret and recreate the stuff that we're making. Question number three. What is your go-to order at your favorite hometown restaurant? And since you are a gamer, what is your like game night snack food? Oh, good question. My go-to order at my favorite hometown restaurant. So right now I'm in uh, right now I'm in uh, uh, North Jersey, uh, in the Greater New York metropolitan area, uh, in a, a suburb outside of New York. There's some excellent Indian food in this town. So the other night I had some, some dal using like a black gram lentils, which was uh, one of my favorites with some jira rice and then usually some kind of spicy chicken dish, like a chicken vindaloo. That's my go-to order there. Game night snacks are hard because you have to be really careful about your sugar levels. 
if I just eat starches and sugars, then I get like the energy spike and then the energy drop. And then uh, I don't like that because then I think my role playing suffers. Mm. So it has to be, it has to be something that, that has like a, a reasonable amount of protein, I think, to, to keep me going. So like almonds with like seasoning and spices are, are one of my favorites right now. They're very crunchy and loud. And that's annoying when you're playing a game over mic. Or if, you know, I have a friend uh, who GMs for me all the time. She has misophonia. So I have to be like really careful about my chewing. But yeah, almonds have like the right kind of balance of, of protein and fat and spice to sort of keep me, to keep me going without causing that crash. Question number four. What are you curious about? What am I curious about? I'm going to talk about martial arts. So uh, just over the past few weeks, I've finally started going back to like in-person martial arts classes. That's been really fun and uh, really good for me because, um, you know, I'd just been doing what I could in quarantine. I had a lot of ring rust going back to actually like fighting people for real over the past couple of months. Fortunately, everyone else does too. (laughs) So, you know, that kind of levels things out. The things that I'm curious about, I'm always, I'm always trying to look for like the gaps in my own fighting style. I'm concerned less about like being the best at any individual form of combat. And I'm more concerned about being able to participate in as many forms of combat as I can. And for me, that's a social thing because I want to be able to fight any martial artist who I meet because there I want to make friends and I want to make connections with people. You know, if someone wants to like grapple or do ground fighting, then I want to be able to do that. If someone does weapons, I want to be able to fight them with weapons. If someone is mostly a striker, I want to be able to strike with them. I want to be able to do like whatever it is that you do, whoever you are. And I, I'm not concerned with like beating you with the thing that you do, but I am, I do want to be able to like interact with you and learn from you. So the things that I'm always curious about are where are the gaps in what I know and what do I need to know that can let me train with as many uh, as many different kinds of people as possible. So the past past couple of weeks, the things that I've been looking at are arm bars. They're really common in judo and uh, especially in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Uh, there was a uh, a person I was fighting who got me in an arm bar, and it happened so quickly that I I wasn't even even really sure what the entry was for it, like how you would set that up or what situations you would even look at where you'd think like, yes, this is a situation where. I think I can get this person in an arm bar. I've been thinking about like, what are the entries to that? What are the best defenses to that kind of thing? And like, how would I start to learn to do that myself? Because I have a lot of ground fighting training, mostly from scholastic wrestling, but we don't really do a lot of like wrist locks or breaks uh, in that situation. And I've done like a lot of standing, like wrist locks and like arm manipulations and arm bars, but not as much on the ground. That's something that I'd like to, to reinforce. So you know, anybody out there, if you're listening, if you ever meet me at a convention or something like that, and like we find some mats, please try to get me in an arm bar. Uh, <laughs> I got to figure that out. Question number five. Is there anything I should have asked but didn't? Man, this is the hardest question. This is, this is especially the hardest question because now I just met you and now I got to correct you. <laughs> I don't want to tell you you're wrong. I don't want to tell you you did something wrong. I just, maybe I um, just, maybe there's a hole in my interview that you can help me fill. 
Look at it that. Uh, let's look at it that way. How are you about arm bars? Not you could really ask good. me uh, what I've been reading. What have you been reading? I really like audiobooks because mm-hmm. that's how I get myself to go running. I can't motivate myself to go running unless I'm, I'm looking forward to an audiobook. So I just read uh, I just read a book called Zealot by Reza Aslan, which is an investigation by a religion scholar into the historical identity of Jesus. And that completely changed my view on like who Jesus was and what the origins of Christianity were and like what the actual relationship was between early Christianity and Judaism. Yeah. And that was, that was just fascinating for me because I actually, uh, my, my father was a a non-practicing Jew and then my mother, my mother is Filipina. So I I was raised Roman Catholic. Um, So both of those things are parts of my identity. Usually nowadays when anyone talks about like Judeo-Christian anything, all too often the people talking about Judeo-Christian connections are trying to like appropriate ideas from Judaism and then reframe them around Christianity. And then that ends up being sort of an axis of, an axis of oppression that ends up supporting anti-Semitism. But this book actually gets into what the historical relationship was between those ideas um, and between uh, characters like James, the brother of Jesus, who kind of inherited Jesus's like political and religious movement after uh, Jesus's death, and then his struggles with Paul, who was sort of the first person to take the Jesus idea and start to recast it into something that could be, that could seem like a, a separate religion. Hmm. So this, this book is fascinating, Zealot by Ressa Aslan. And then on the, on the fiction side, I've been making my way through the Legends of the Condor Heroes, which is a classical uh, wuxia novel by uh, Jin Young. It's like, a, like an adventure serial, I think that was originally published in newspapers about like swashbuckling adventure there's series after series about it and like loads and loads of movie adaptations. And it's like, it's a really fun, fast paced, lighthearted, but still like dramatic and poignant martial arts epic. You know, if you like wuxia cinema or you like, uh, you know, Alexandre Dumas, um, then I highly recommend uh, Legend of the Condor Heroes. Question number six. If you could create a new holiday, what would it commemorate? So I think that we have a, we have a lot of holidays that are about successes. Again, this is something that I'm thinking about because of reading Zealot, because one of the things that I didn't know about, about Judea in the time of Jesus was how many different messiahs there were fighting back against a Roman rule every year. There was movement after movement and cell after cell of these uh, outlaw revolutionaries who were who were trying to overthrow this Roman yoke. Almost all of them failed and were crushed under the uh, the heels of imperialism and died on died on crosses just like Jesus. So there were dozens of these guys. I guess that got me thinking about holidays to celebrate the people who tried and fought and failed kind of like a kind of like an unknown soldier idea all of the people who fought but didn't live to see success i think there should be a holiday to celebrate all of the people who who knew they would never get to see victory but fought anyway the final word i think the foundation is be okay with people telling you that you're wrong because none of us can avoid making mistakes but we all have control over how we react when other people call us out on it. Mm. 
if you hold yourself accountable to others and you listen to them when they're trying to hold you accountable, then you can improve and you can be stronger and you can do better next time. If you trust the people around you and you know that they'll help you be better, not just call you out, not just try to, not just try to like crush your dreams, but help you be better, then you can take risks safely because you have other people looking out for you and then you can do the same for them. Like, don't be afraid to, don't be afraid to be wrong and make it easy for other people to call you out and correct you and make them confident that you're not gonna, you're not gonna make their life hell because just because like they're telling you that you got something wrong. If you do that, you'll be in a really strong place. And you said there was two, there was two parts or that I just, that so, I completely miss them. No, no, you were right. So the, I think the, the two elements are, don't be afraid to, um, or take risks. Absolutely do take risks. Err on the side of, of like, don't erase people from your work. Uh, I'd rather you tried and failed to represent a certain group than that you didn't represent them at all. Hmm. Um, so take those risks and push yourself outside of your comfort zone. But when you do that, know that you're going to get things wrong and welcome the process of being corrected. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me on. This was really fun. And this concludes another episode of Demand Does the Six Questions. If you like what you heard, tell the world by logging on to Apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star rating and review. You can also follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Demond Does. You can also send any comments, suggestions, or questions to Demond Does all one word, two Ds, at gmail.com. So, until next time, see it, hear it, speak it, 